Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the first week of October. Uh, I am here with Tammy, and uh, Tammy, how are you doing? Hi, Jay. I'm good. I stayed out really late last night, though. Sunday night, I went to karaoke. You went to karaoke? Was it in a room? And I did, I did, well, I knew you were going to ask that. I did the kind that you like, where you have to humiliate yourself in front of a whole bar. Oh, yeah. How'd that go? Were you converted to my mindset? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because my friend who listens to the podcast, hello, Kelvin, happy birthday. He turned 60, so it was a big one. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, but everybody chose really depressing songs. (laughs) So it was a very sort of like down tempo. Like what, The Cure or something? Yeah, there was just like a lot of moody songs. Although there were a couple good ones. Like there was also Prince and there was, yeah. Yeah. Ones. Like it would, but it was definitely kind of like older, moodier set for a oh, night. So they did like Johnny Cash's Hurt or something like that. <laughs> not quite that. Although there was this guy who came alone who was not part of our party who did an incredible Neil Young. It really? It was very surprising. Like a Neil yeah. Young in person? Impersonation? Amazing. Like he sat. No, tri- just he just killed the song. Oh. It's incredible. No, yeah, that's always a nice surprise. I don't know. Yeah. Although there is a line, you know, where um, there's a line where people are trying a little bit too hard and they're a little bit too good. <laughs> and I've thought about that quite a bit as a karaoke enthusiast. But um, I remember I went to this bar in yeah, San Francisco at some point. No, it wasn't in San Francisco. It was in New York City, and it was uh, I was went with my friend, and he was dating a singer, right, and. Her singer friends showed up and they were amazing. But I was like, guys, come on. You know, it's a bit much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. There's there's like some sort of like, uh, I don't know, like I don't want to use this word, but you got to dumb it down a little for the Right. There's like kind of a authenticity thing that you need. (laughs) Right. That where people can believe you're not a professional singer, but that you're just very talented and that you're just kind of doing this for fun. But you can't be doing it as like, oh, I train all the time for this and I hope someone's here to notice me type of thing, right? You have to... It's like an audition. Yeah, you, yeah. Need, it, you need it to be effortless in a way. Um, or it needs to be this great thing, right? Like many years ago when I would go to Winnie's, this was probably tw- oh, 20 years Winnie's. ago. It was yeah. 20 years ago. That was Holy a great place. Shit. So 20 years ago, I go to Winnie's in Chinatown. For people who don't know, it's this. Uh, it was this... Uh, karaoke bar um where they would all the songs were on giant laser discs and so you mm-hmm. would go in and you would <laughs> you put in the song and they would put in a laser page through the sticky catalog and <laughs> yeah. get the giant laser disc <laughs> anyway there was a, so incredible there was a guy there always who wore an eye patch and he would sing <laughs> secret agent man but he would sing it secret asian man you know i'm sure what? that's i'm sure some of the listeners will remember this and he was so good right and it was always a treat and i feel like that's sort of the pinnacle of karaoke and then sometimes somebody gets up and they just sing and they can take it to places and they perform in a way but they're kind of bad but they're just good enough where you appreciate the effort like that's also a pinnacle but somebody who's a professional singer who does karaoke it's like very annoying i think that's kind of crossed the line the there was a guy yesterday also who seemed to have come alone who was like a very serious like elton john singer oh really and he just fucking went for it too so yeah these guys there are some people who are like you know they show up every sunday and they're ready okay have their tune elton john a guy who's a very serious elton john guy is is okay in my book you know yeah yeah because if it's like a weird obsessive thing where you just love elton john i like elton john quite a bit (laughs) and you want to sing oh i don't know um 
goodbye yellow brick road or something like that and you every time you do it everyone gets happy like that's fine I just mean like people who are sort of trying out for various singing shows and stuff like that like if there's like a few if you see a future outside of being like oh these nine people on a Sunday (laughs) night are gonna love this then then I'm out on it you know I should should, uh this is oh yeah we talked about karaoke last week maybe you should just turn it in I don't know. I'm excited for Karen's book to come out. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should not have a karaoke episode where we do karaoke, but maybe we should (laughs) do more karaoke. Talk Uh, about all the. Yeah. Um. So this week we have a great guest. Uh, Tammy, do you want to tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, sure. Um, her name is Samita. Mukhopadhyay, and we know her through the media world. Um, She used to be at Teen Vogue, but we talked to her about fatness and some of these new diabetes drugs, Manjaro, Zempic, and then we talk about girl boss culture. And she's very funny. I had a great time talking to her. Yeah, I liked her quite a bit. She was, uh, and the conversation is very good. And I think that it went on for a while and I think it was great. So let's just hop right into it. So this is our conversation. We're really excited to have you here, Samita. Uh, Samita Mukhopadhyay is a writer, an editor. A lot of you will know her name because she was the former executive editor of Teen Vogue when it exploded and came into a lot of our consciousness. And she's working on a book about girl boss culture, which we definitely want to touch on today. But the primary reason we wanted to talk to Samita is because a few months ago, um, she wrote an essay about Munjaro, which is one of these new weight loss drugs that um, is with Ozempic and Wagovi. Um, you guys will have heard about these that were created for diabetes, but are treating uh, and maybe um, arguably not treating um, other kinds of conditions now. Um, but yeah, we're really excited to have you here, Samita. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Big fans of both of your work and the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's very sweet. Um, so why don't we why don't we dig right into that just to start? So you wrote this great essay about that's very personal um, about your um, sort of journey from being quote unquote curvy to quote unquote fat, and you talk about how you were finding a lot of comfort in the body positivity movement, but at the same time um, you were dealing with a personal tragedy, which is the death of your father, who died from it sounds like obesity related diabetes, and and so that sort of started shifting both what was happening you know with yourself health wise, but also your thinking around these drugs and and your body. So yeah, a lot to unpack there, but maybe you could just start by saying like what was it that sort of made you think about your body in a different way and be open to trying this drug yeah um thank you tammy so um yeah when i i decided to write the piece at that point um partially because of this kind of change in thinking that i was starting to have that i realized that people weren't comfortable talking about um which is the kind of difference between you know, body positivity and embracing yourself and accepting yourself for who you are with some, you know, hard science around health and body. And, you know, a lot of that historically that science has been troubling. It's been, you know, limited in terms of the scope of its testing um, and it can be very deterministic and it, you know, can be hard to sometimes feel like you can advocate for yourself when you might be in a body that isn't one, you know, I mean, we even remember, 
from childhood, those crazy charts they had at the doctor's appointment, you know, the doctor's office that was like, what made you obese? And it was like, really not that much. Like, it was like very easy to be in that (laughs) range. And all of a sudden you were kind of treated a certain way. Um, And so I had rejected a lot of that. I think that the, Mm -hmm. you know, body positivity movement has um, created a really remarkable and incredible language around advocating for yourself um, within these systems that may not always be accurate or reflective or take into consideration all of the multiple factors that lead to um, different body sizes. Um, and so I had I had really rejected it. And then around the time my father died, I was diagnosed with prediabetes and I wasn't really doing much in my lifestyle to prevent it. Like I was kind mm-hmm. of working all the time. I was eating takeout all the time. I was living the typical New York City editor life, but I was also stressed out. And I, you know, was kind of caught between these two narratives where my doctor who, you know, I had, and I write about this in the piece, like I had actually sought out a doctor that was more sensitive on these topics that had a little extensive training on it. Um, and, you know, she was kind of like, really compassionate about the lifestyle that I was living, but also was telling me one story. But then I was like buying this other narrative around advocating for myself and kind of taking my doctor's advice almost felt like failure to um, fully embrace myself. And, you know, and so I think that's really where that shift in thinking had to come in was, you know, looking at um, numbers and looking at, you know, not at not BMI, but like your actual like A1C, which is an indicator of disease. It is an indicator of, um, you know, your, your insulin resistance and, and it's, it's not a number you want to mess with. And, and then I'm having- Can you explain what that is real quick, the A1C? Yeah. So your A1C is basically what determines your level of blood sugar um, and the rate at which your body can kind of produce insulin to, um, you know, properly metabolize blood sugar. And as your kind of A1C goes up, your ability to do so goes down. And so that often leads to weight gain or it leads to a condition, you know, um, called diabetes, um, which then, you know, requires a different type of medical intervention, which which is quite serious and and challenging to reverse and linked to several other kind of diseases. And, um, you know, and I also at the same time had this real time example of my father had been diabetic for most of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and towards the end of his life was um, in late stage renal failure, which is connected to a lifetime of diabetes. Um, and, you know, ultimately, once you are on dialysis, you know, you're like, have two to five years to live. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a wonder, it's not, it's not a good quality of life. And so I also had that kind of real time example in front yeah. of me where I had to do something now. So um, yeah. do you think like, the, I'm interested in the body positivity movement and when it came about, you know, because it's one of those things that seemed to just appear at some point. And I couldn't tell if it was a term, right, that was sort of a fixed to a type of marketing campaign. Um, I remember when like Sports <laughs> yeah. Illustrated, for example, did their first plus size model. That's I think right. it was around that time when I first started hearing about body positivity. And I was interested in it, not just, you know, like, I think it in... I was interested in just as a point of analysis being like, well, why is this happening right now? Um, why are all these brands lining up to do this? Um, and, uh, you know, what are the forces behind it, right? Like, is it is it that some people push for this in a type of way that was positive? Is there some cynical reasoning behind it? Is it both, you know, like, which probably both, right? But yeah, can you just tell a bit <laughs> about like how you first came in contact with it? Because in your essay, you talk about like, you know, like, the finding this was like, quite a relief for you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so body positivity, I mean, it's, it's been around for quite a bit of time. I mean, I think that it was, um, you know, it's always been a core part of, I think, feminism, even from the turn of the century and, and you know, what, like moving from corsets to like looser waisted things to, you know, different um, discussions about, you know, how we restrict women's bodies, whether they be large or they be small or whatever the kind of historical moment is. Um, I think fat acceptance uh, came kind of out of the 60s um, and was part of the like, you will not, you know, my body, my choice, like you will not define what I put in my body, how I express my body, what I wear. Um, and so it has kind of been core, I think, to feminism. And I, I think I was first exposed to it to zines it, with zines in the 90s. Like my college roommate mm. was a zine girl. Um, and um, she had kind of there was like a handful of like fat inclusion, fat positivity zines. Um, and at that point, like, you know, I don't think I would have even necessarily identified as fat. Like, I think I was like a size 10 or a size 12. But in the 90s in the US, like that was that felt very fat. And that felt very like I take up a lot of space. And so the language kind of was really compelling to me. And I, I um, really got into it. And then um, I think that, you know, in terms of finding relief in the movement later on, it's like, you know, I was a fat woman walking into a job that probably has determined thinness for the last like 40 years. Yeah, you know, like the largest I'd ever been in my life. I'm like interviewing for a job with Anna Wintour and I'm, you know, <laughs> Like we've all watched The Devil Wears Prada. Like these guys are literally making fun of Anne Hathaway for being a size six. So you know, I was oh I, I did feel a sense of relief that as I was going into the job, um, you know, there was this kind of vibrant movement that was happening, really like in <laughs> circles, you know, around women that were demanding more. There was, you know. Um, Katie, uh, what is her last name, um, who was wearing like taking celebrity outfits and making them plus size and was like going viral for that or hmm. would go to dressing rooms to ask for clothes and they wouldn't have anything and she would film that whole experience. Um, and so, you know, I would even say like four or five years ago, um, I don't think that people were having as much like they weren't talking about it as much and there wasn't as many offerings. Like I think in the last five years, we've really seen this increase of brands like anthropology, having plus clothes, Madewell having plus clothes. Um, and I think part of it is pressure from the industry, but I actually just think it's a recognition of the average body type and knowing that it's like a smart, <laughs> <laughs> the smart market to be reaching. Um, but I do think it's normalized in ways that I think that, you know, even 20, 30 years ago, um, if you were above a size 10, it was like almost impossible to find clothes even at a mall. And I think that that is something that has really changed. And, um, you know, and I think there's both cynical reasons for it, but also really practical ones. Yeah, I think people, the 90s were wild in terms of sort of the thinness of the fashion world, you know. Um, that is, I hadn't really thought about this while preparing for it. But like, you know, like you were sort of going into the crucible of what actually <laughs> Yeah. I I worked for um at Horrible. the old, at the old Condé Nast building, you know, in 2014 right before they moved to One World Trade Center. And I was very I had heard all these stories about the cafeteria, you know, and like who would be in the cafeteria. And I got to admit I found it like both disturbing in the way that I think maybe you did but I also found it like somewhat disappointing sometimes you know where it's just like at the time I was like these are just nerds you know like these are just like word nerds who are, <laughs> who are standing around 
and they're trying to have these loud conversations about stuff, you know, but I look at them and like, I just don't believe you, you know, like, I don't believe that you think about these things. But you didn't, you didn't see like the skinny little fashion girls flitting about because they still no. like, definitely exist in no, the building. I, like I, I see them around. <laughs> yeah. But even then I was just like, yeah, I don't know. You know, like, I think that you're probably <laughs> just putting yourself through some misery, but I don't believe that you're as mean or as like judgmental as you seem, mm-hmm. you know? And then but then I saw like, you know, Andre Leon Talley and Grace Coddington in the elevator. And they, of course, had a presence where I was like, whoa, you know, like I kind of like shrunk <laughs> to the corner of the elevator because I was just like, I don't actually feel like I felt inferior in this like very strange way. <laughs> but like, what that, that's just a wild place for you to end up, right? Because it is like, there's such a veneer of that. I think it's fake, right? Like it's not. Like well, the Devil Wears Prada just the... feels like it was a fantasy, you know. At, well, after working at Hyundai, I was just like, I was like, none of these people are actually mean, you know. I'm meaner than all of you, you know. <laughs> In different ways, though. I mean, was was there that pressure to sort of perform and dress up and to be sort of glamorous? I assume yes at Teen Vogue. Yeah, in a way. oh yeah, definitely. Because at the I mean, New Yorker, everyone's a schlub, and it doesn't matter, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely had the experience that you're talking about, Jay, where I walked in and I was like, well, "I run circles around you guys." Like, I'm yeah, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> um, so yeah, there's definitely just realizing they're they're nerds, right? Like they're like they're, they're yeah, yeah. Um, there definitely is. So in on the fashion brands, I think there is absolutely a culture of kind of glamour and, you know, dressing a certain way. And there was like, I always call it the Condé uniform where everyone wore this like floral dress, you know, that was like almost like Amish. Like it's like a turtleneck yeah, dress, with long, long sleeves and billowy. I think a lot of Brooklyn moms wear this stuff. It's like Ula Johnson and a piece apart and like those brands uh, <laughs> in my boots. And like everybody wears that. Uh-huh. I definitely felt that. I will say I kind of had fun with it because I have always been into fashion. So it was, I actually found the people that were in beauty and fashion um, accessories, like I actually found they were really fun and they mm-hmm. kind of wanted to talk about this stuff and they wanted to help you find brands. And, um, you know, it, so that part of it was actually kind of fun. I, I do think that there is a culture and a feeling there. And I was, you know, I, like I was a little bit like I was like I'm gonna go work at the Devil Wears Prada like it's gonna be just like that and <laughs> in some ways it is you know like some some of them is <laughs> accurate in ways that I'm like I don't even know how this was like made uh, legally but um but I do think you know uh, there are definitely people that act in certain ways but it's so you know it's almost campy like you're like this is ridiculous you know like right that's mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. That's everyone's in on it so I remember yeah. like the second day I worked there there I was in line at the like sandwich station in the cafeteria or whatever which in itself is the based place to be you know <laughs> like I'm in line at the cafeteria sandwich station and there are these two uh, <laughs> they must have been like 24 years old and they're like you know they're probably editorial assistants at Vogue or Glamour or Redbook or whatever, right? Um, I don't know if those are Conde brands, but like, you know, at that time, there's a lot. There were, it was 2014, there so there are many yeah. more. And they're having this like very loud conversation about the best way to get to the Hamptons. And I just kind of looked at them and I was just like, this is not, this is, I was expecting you guys to be way cooler. <laughs> you know? Like way everything, you know, like you're just like, I don't know, like I don't, Okay, going back to Manjaro, right? Um, sorry about that long diversion there. I just was like <laughs> having this image in my head and then I had this like sense memory of, you know, me sort of overcoming my insecurity of working there with scorn. Um, but there's this 
passage that you write about and you talk about how a lot of the essay is about sort of how you are rationalizing this decision to yourself, right? Given Mm -hmm. the ideas you had in the past about acceptance and, you know, like the damage that people do when they ascribe to a certain body uh, idea. And one of the questions that I have was just like, do, do you think that it made it easier or that it will make it easier for people in a positive way that this is like a prescription medication instead of something like dieting or exercise where all those attachments of, oh, you just didn't exercise hard enough. Oh, you snuck in like a mm-hmm. little bit. You like you grabbed a handful of cereal at night. That's 120 calories that you shouldn't have done. Why are you so weak? Right? Like those are the types of negative feedback things that I think are quite destructive to people who are trying to lose weight. Um, do you think like the, what, how do you feel like the prescription part of it fits into all of this? So I think the prescription part is complicated actually, because you can't, um, get a prescription unless you're actually diabetic. Um, and so that's why it's been such a challenging conversation. And if I write a part two right now, I am currently unable to get Manjaro on my insurance. They had given a discount code to an initial batch of users that made it $25 a month. And then they lift those, those coupon codes expired at the top of the summer. And so now you have to pay full price for the medication. And a lot of people like myself have need it for medical reasons, but it's not considered, it hasn't been approved by the FDA for weight loss yet. It's only been approved for diabetes. So I do qualify, I could potentially qualify for Bogovi or one of the other ones that have been approved for that. Manjaro still hasn't. Um, and so what is the full cost right now? Um, for me, it was like five fifty a month. Um, and then I talked to somebody else and she told me it was 800 for her and it could be upwards of 1100 per month. I think the full cost is like 11 or 1200 a month. Right, so that's unaffordable for yeah, the vast right. majority of people. Yeah, Definitely. exactly. Right. And, and specifically the people that need access to it. <laughs> right. Right. In particular. Um, And so a lot of people, their doctors put them on it when it came, when it hit the market like a year or two ago. And now they're all facing the same kind of Mm. like, I can't access it anymore. And so I think the prescription piece is a little more complicated in terms of, you know, who I think this drug could really help and who ultimately will get access to it. Um, Because even with insurance, like I was trying to get my mom who is diabetic on Ozempic and like that, there was like some crazy $300 monthly copay, which is like, these are not, these are not accessible ways to get these drugs. But I think Jay, to your, to your question, the thing that a drug like this can help with um, in terms of cultural change is realizing that this is a brain chemistry question. This is not a willpower question. And I think that that's been the big debate about weight loss is like, if you just work hard enough, if you work out, if you control your food, you will get certain results from that. And a lot of times people end up who end up on these drugs are people that may have tried all of those things, but they haven't actually worked because the, you know, connection between the stomach and the brain. And there's a lot of science behind this that I'm going to like, misrepresent somehow but basically that like for me and I write about this in the essay is like that's the that was the big moment for me when I realized that there was something in my brain chemistry because it literally just like turned the switch off and then I stopped craving food the way that I normally crave it Mm -hmm. and that relief that came with that to realize that like this isn't just on me this is a result of you know eating a diet that's full of, um, you know, we have a lot of additives in our food and they, you know, trigger certain things in our brain around addiction. And, um, you know, I was a smoker, like I have other like issues of like, you know, like I had 
have become addicted to other things as well. So it's not unlikely that I would become addicted to food and um, realizing that it's not, you know, and, and I think that it's interesting when we think of so many other addictive substances, you know, we're just we're we could be just as nasty about those addictions, but there is some thinking and science around the like like biology of addiction. And I think that one thing that this drug could do culturally is for us to really realize that like this is another thing that people suffer from. And it's not just like tell them to go for a walk and like eat better and that's gonna change it. So yeah, I, I that was yeah. what yeah, that's what was sort of the thought I had while reading your essay it was like, oh well, this could be. I mean, in in sort of like a kind of scary biotech type of way, but still, I think ultimately good, which is like, I don't know, I think about it, I have like, I drink like seven seltzers a day and three Diet Cokes or something. And I'm just like, this is terrible for me, but I can't stop, you know? And I'm just like, oh, it's just for the same reason that I threw like, thank God, alternative nicotine methods, basically like ingest like the equivalent of three packs of cigarettes a day. I'm just like, there's nothing I can do to stop this without medical intervention, right? Like it's not, and food is obviously the same way. And it's like, uh, I think if it was sort of classified, if people, more people thought of it that way, being like, oh, this drug will just stop that thing, then it would be closer to what I think is actually happening. Um, and would take away some of that, like, like weakness stigma, which um, you're right, I think, in terms, you know, obviously, yeah, the shame that way culture. about drug use and right. shame, shame them. But I do think that there's more acceptance of that overall. Yeah. I was curious, though, like on the on that cultural piece, because there is so obviously we also know that, you know, with the Kardashian stuff, like whatever people are using Ozempic and other drugs in like a casual and cosmetic way, essentially, who who don't aren't actually at risk of disease. And um, I can imagine if I, you know, that there's probably some, you know, fat activists who are are saying like, well, if we take this too far and kind of use these drugs in, you know, earlier and earlier on in as a kind of preventative drug, are we sort of like basically abolishing fatness in some way? Or do you know what I mean? That that maybe like, yes, there's it's sort of accepted, like if we look at like what the FDA is doing, it's like, okay, right, at these particular stages of diagnosis, like, yes, you can receive these drugs and it's appropriate. But, you know, the, all these companies now are trying to develop similar drugs. And so as it becomes kind of more popular and maybe more acceptable to use earlier on, is there then this tension with body positivity that really presents itself? That's like, okay, are we just doing away with fatness? Yeah. I mean, the reality is like body positivity is never one, right? Like th th we don't actually, sure. like, like body, body <laughs> yes. you know, yes. and you know, the one thing I will say about, I think wealthy people and people that, you know, are expected to maintain a certain body type. I mean, these are also people that suffer from eating disorders. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not a yeah. doctor, I'm not diagnosed the Kardashians with an eating disorder, but like, you know, it, it is normal in Hollywood to have disordered eating in some way yes. or to to do some kind of crazy diet to keep your body a certain way. And so I don't think that pressure has changed necessarily. And I do think that, you know, one thing I was actually thinking about last night, because I, I haven't talked about this in a while, um, is like, you know, if that can give them some relief too, like, that's fine. Like, I think it's actually very mm -hmm. normal for pharmaceuticals to be used off label for different things. Like, you know, I think that, you know, sometimes you'll find out that like a pain medication also has good, you know, helps people with insomnia or, you know, like, I don't think that that's right. that crazy. And I also don't think that we have accepted people's bodies where this 
Like, I, I don't think the pressure to be thin has changed necessarily. I think that we're seeing more, we, we're seeing a loud minority of people that want it. And we're seeing some products that, and services that may be more supportive of that. Um, but I think that, you know, ultimately to me, like the solution isn't just to be like, that body acceptance is this kind of like flat thing that's like, you know, we're only going to, this is only going to be successful if like people feel like they can be whatever size they are. And, you know, it, to me, it really is more about like, you know, how do we have honest conversations about what a healthy life looks like? And, you know, whether that be in the context of thinness or the context of fatness. And, you know, I, I think that I'm less worried about like fatness being erased than I am this overemphasis on who's using the drug and why versus, you know, who really should have access to this drug and what that says about our medical industry, about our food industry, about the kinds of bodies we prioritize. Um, and to me, that is like more about that's to me is more body acceptance. I think we focus a lot on representation and inclusion and that's important. But like at the end of the day, that was kind of what I had to tear down where like I was literally in the moment that I'm addressing these health problems. I have fashion brands calling me being like, can we take a picture of you like in our clothes? Because like there are so few fat fashion editors and I'm sitting here being like, I'm fat. Like, and then my doctor's like, you're fat. You have to lose weight. You know, like, <laughs> like, I'm supposed to be embracing this thing that I, you know? <laughs> like, wow. I was, I was, I wasn't embracing it. I was like, what? Like, yeah. I, you know, so I think that that's, sorry, that's kind that's of a funny. <laughs> that's funny. No, yeah. that's, yeah. There were even, that's a wild email. Yeah, get. seriously. <laughs> Like, like so many people were like, how does it feel to be this historic first? And I was like, I mean, we're so proud of you. We want to, we want you know, like, um, I'm like, yeah. That, You're like, what? <laughs> Excuse me? Um, yeah, that's, um, I think Tammy, that question is kind of similar to people who get mad at like the, how BBB loans were, you know, or, uh, you know pandemic loans were used by some people in bad ways you know where it's like all right like overall it's a good and if we focus on some bad actors in the space then and we sort of theorize about a way to that fatness in itself will be taken away it's almost like a biological argument because it's odd it's almost like you know how people say there's like a kind of small but interesting movement that says that genetic screening at which for pregnant women which is done earlier and earlier and more and more accurate at this well that's point, what i that's like, what i was yeah, going like to say that it's more of a, analogous yeah. to that and like the kind of like disability rhetoric around right, that which right. you know i mean obviously it's like an exaggerated argument but i think it's like it's worth i think it, it's still kind of worth considering sometimes because it does like push us in weird ways to think about these things right yeah and it does sort of put a biological point on that there's something malfunctioning with people who are obese right which is that right. that part is interesting i do think that yeah. like the conversation or i wonder how you feel about this samita which is like the conversation does seem because of who has access to this right now right the conversation is a bit sort of located within people who are wealthy right but mm -hmm. obviously obesity is not a problem so much for people not wealthy but you know like people who are sort of upper middle class or people who have uh who are educated um, it's a much bigger problem amongst working class people, um, specifically, you know, 
black populations, I think, in terms of diabetes, right? And that um, it seems like the, the that conversation hasn't quite happened yet. Like the idea is sort of almost theoretical about whether what do we do with this thing, but there are tons of people that this could help potentially. And it seems like in some ways they're not part of this discourse right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that was actually one of the reasons I wanted to write this piece is we are focusing so much on a very small portion of the population that has, you know, obviously celebrities that have a lot of cultural cachet and influence, you know, just personal decisions that people make. But this drug to write about this drug like it's another diet fad actually does quite a disservice to what this drug could potentially do for diabetes treatment and um i am the first person to be skeptical of big pharma like i am one of those people that like doesn't even like to go to the doctor like i for me to say this <laughs> qualify and contextualize like i don't trust these motherfuckers ever and you know but what i do know is what diabetes has done to my family what it has done to um my extended family. And um, I also know, you know, what it does to people on the lower end of, you know, kind of the socioeconomic socioeconomic spectrum and how challenging it is to lose weight when you're really stressed out, when you don't have access to good food, when you, um, you know, some of our like, you know, cultures are so embedded with like food as this like core part of it and really fattening and bad foods that can like sometimes or like good foods, but like that can large quantities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that are hard. They're, they're, it's deeper cultural work that takes longer. Um, and I think a lot of people feel like most, like you don't have to tell somebody who has been diagnosed with obesity that they need to lose weight. Like they know that everything in the world is telling them that their medical professionals are telling them that. And um, a lot of times I think people just feel like they're in a train crash, like a slow train crash. They don't know how to stop. And this is an actual tool that could be an intervention. Like this could take a generation of people off of insulin, which is like mind blowing to think about. Um, You know, and and so the fact that like we have focused so much on this side of the conversation versus the fact that it's cost prohibitive, that there's major manufacturing issues around, you know, I mean, there's a shortage of the drug because Mm -hmm. of, you know, a a bit of a culturally created panic around them. Like it's not something we did not hear about these things two or three years ago, but um, people were on these drugs, you know, a couple of years ago, but there just hadn't been this kind of like cultural moment around it. And so I do think that that's one of the dangers of focusing so much on the Kardashians or, you know, whoever else is taking it is we're missing this bigger story that like, this is actually a story about, um, medical justice and getting people the medication that could potentially change their lives and and extend their life, life. And focusing instead on, you know, bitchy comments about like, oh, this person's taking a Zempic. And it's like, it just pisses me. Like, I'm like, you're all so skinny. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, are you just mad? Like, <laughs> yeah, I think like Gia, our uh, friend Gia Tolentino, who's been on the show um, before, wrote a piece about Ozempic too. And and some part of that, say she gets into sort of like food, subs, you know, like, like corn oil subsidies and all of this stuff that is also just baked into our general economic system that is like leads to toxic eating habits and like bad things, um, especially in poor communities. So yeah, I do think it's, it is this larger discussion, but it does not go there very often at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think that it's probably going to take some pain in terms of the body positivity idea, right? And and some adjustment on that to to get this through. But it seems like the benefits are quite high. I mean, I'm you know I have diabetes, 
history of my family too and it yeah, really weighs too. like a weight over your head whenever you eat anything at this point because I, mean, I didn't care about it until I turned about 40 you know but since then it's like um it's pretty difficult to to think about and I don't know maybe I should go on it too um I wanted to we wanted to talk a bit about you also wrote this essay about the girl boss I found it really interesting because um you know like you you did it right like in a lot of ways (laughs) you were a girl boss yeah you really were (laughs) and you were you were doing that at a place where I I would say that it was almost like a attempt to redefine what that was right um through Teen Vogue and I I think Mm -hmm. I don't know for people who don't know but I'm sure everyone knows right Teen Vogue sort of had this awakening where it became much more political um but it's still Condé Nast and it's still Teen Vogue, right? And so uh, the people who are reading it in a lot of ways are people who are aspiring young women who want to figure out something in life, right? And so I don't know, like, uh, I-, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Tammy, like, why, like you, you had a question, I think, at the start of it, and then I can just sort of hop in afterwards, right? Yeah, I mean, I think like just just one thing. So for people who maybe weren't reading it when you were in charge, like I think of you as the editor who kind of brought Teen Vogue into this like political, like woke moment, like not in a derogatory way, but just like, you know, I like I would have all these people since I do a lot of labor stuff in labor be like, do you read Teen Vogue? Like it's like the number one place to go for, for labor coverage. And I'm like, what's happening right now? You know, um, so I was curious if, if you could talk about that, like when you came into the organization, what were they doing? And you know, why did you push it in this direction? And and did that work? You know, did you sort of achieve the political aims that you were interested in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, according to David Leonard at the New York Times, no, not even close, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, how did it start? So I was hired um, in 2017 and Phil Picardi was at the, the chief content officer there. Um, and he was the one who kind of decided to start covering politics at the brand. And I think part of it was, you know, he was a newly emboldened, like he was a beauty editor, but um, the Trump moment was happening and what he was kind of seeing with the teenagers that, and kind of young people that they were talking to is they were becoming increasingly politicized and there wasn't really an outlet for that. And so they kind of just started to cover some politics and they, you know, controversially had Lauren Duca writing a politics column. And, you know, so Teen Vogue started to get a little bit of attention. And I think what they realized in that moment was they wanted to kind of really lean into that. Um, And so that was part of why I was brought in. And um, my background was very much more in like left journalism and organizing. And, you know, prior to that, I had been at Mike, which was another place that had been kind of covering race and gender. Um, And before that, I was like in the feminist blogs. And so, yeah, it was it was a journey for me, you know, to go from (laughs) complete independent media to, um, you know, the the halls of Condé Nast. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a really exciting time. And I think that part of what we had going for us and it's like so messed up to think about it is like people don't expect much from or for teen Mm -hmm. girls. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. So I think (laughs) that we covered politics. Everyone was just like, oh, my God, like, yeah, especially on Lauren Duca, right, where it felt like there was a part of it was so tied to the brand that it was that Teen Vogue had done this, right? Because otherwise, I was like, well, I don't know, like, this seems kind of, you know, if you read this in The Nation or something like that, you wouldn't have right. you wouldn't think this twice, type of yeah. way. But it was like this, it was a juxtaposition of Vogue, teens, and and the sort of politics. Um, 
Totally. Around it. That was interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, the, from the essay, I wanted to read this little part from it because I found it really interesting. It, this is around, you know, the idea of the girl boss as well. And you're, it's sort of the moment where you're reading about this sort of when they became the publishing world, at least, or at least the media world turned on the girl boss idea. Right. And so, um, this is like when away, for example, was getting canceled, right. And stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, um, as I watched the takedowns come one after another on social media, though, I couldn't help but notice that one side of the girl boss narrative was being ignored. As a former executive editor at Teen Vogue, I knew that hustle culture was the water in which many young women, especially women of color, swam. They showed up to our events with their resumes in before even graduating from college. Aspiring entrepreneurs emailed me regularly, voraciously networking in an effort to start their businesses. I worked with women who earnestly posted serif font graphics on social media about <laughs> how it's not luck, it's hard work, and Instagram stories about the importance of hustle. They had unironically subscribed to the girl boss ethos. It's like a very interesting idea to me because it's something that I was always uncomfortable with some of that cancellation stuff too around girl boss as an idea. And I will just say that at the time, it always felt like it was a bunch of like lit kids sneering, you know, like uh, sort of people who, <laughs> who listen to like maybe this type, this podcast or, you know, podcasts <laughs> like it, who are wildly, much. <laughs> wildly overeducated and most likely very privileged, right? I mean, you know, like, yeah. like I can classify myself as such, right? Like that. And just to be like, oh, they're trying so hard. This is so like de classe. And that kind of bothered me, even though I was very annoyed by the girl boss <laughs> in itself, right? Like, I, I sort of believe the fundamentals of what the critique was. But I was also being like, I don't think you, maybe you don't actually care about this. Maybe you're just sort of doing this sneering at like, you know, like it's almost like you're sort of pointing out the nouveau riche, you know, like it's, and that's like somewhat unsettling to me, but yeah, yeah. If you can just like talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was part of why I wanted to write the piece. Like it felt like a really insider and elitist criticism from people who I was like, somebody, you have someone who could pay your rent. I, I just like mm -hmm. something about the way that you talk about this makes me feel like you don't actually have to hustle. So like right. you're being critical of other people that do. And, um, you know, there were a lot of young women in my life at Teen Vogue, who I both worked with and met through the work that we were doing that didn't come from super privileged backgrounds. And they were deep, like a lot of the things that we are kind of over, like really motivated them. Like they saw these young entrepreneurs, you know, like an Ami Cole who, um, oh God, what is the name of her brand that Sephora just acquired? You know, these like young black women who um, were building businesses on their own terms and, you know, becoming very successful at it. And those were real models of success for, I think, especially young working class women or young black women, women of color who may not have the kind of traditional pathways into careers the way that, you know, somebody who went to, I don't know why it's always my go-to, but like went to Wesleyan or Oberlin or, you know, like, and then something about <laughs> it felt very like, like I went to like a liberal arts college and like, you know, yeah. Are lame, you know, and um, so yeah, that was part of why, like, just trying to untangle that, like, of course, like, we know, you know, we're all like understand Marxist philosophy and we understand that, like, when certain people are aspiring to certain things, they fit into 
this kind of, you know, mold around neoliberal, whatever, you know, like marketplace, you know, and those beliefs. And like, that's true. Like we should be skeptical of the ways that a lot of these companies came to be, the kind of inner dynamics in them, the toxic workplace environments, the labor issues, obviously like those are really important. But I also think like, we forget that there are young people that work in certain environments or like young women that I've known that, you know, they grew up in environments where like nobody around them graduated high school. Right. And so for them, like the idea that they would hustle and that it was on there, like they had to do it and they had to do it for themselves and like deeply earnestly kind of, you know, buying into a lot of this stuff that like, part of it's almost heartbreaking because you're like I don't even know if that's gonna work but like I see why you're into it <laughs> like I see right, why right. Into, you know um and and, and for, for a lot of them it has worked and so I, I think that's and that's something I talk a lot about in my book is like I can sit here and criticize hustle culture I have hustled harder than most people I know and that's like resulted in a like success for me like that's not I can't deny that there's a truth in that and uh you know and and so yeah I think that's where I was kind of wanting to add a different perspective because it did feel i think jay to your instinct like it felt very elitist the criticism did i know i've 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 I've, i hear you i think it's like maybe immigrant thing where you come up and you you don't realize how hard you're working compared to some of the other people who you come across in our world of you know media and then but you but you do realize that is that to be gain any type of social acceptance that does affect your career, you need to sort of play it off as being effortless. And that that is kind of like a weird psychodrama, you know, because it's like, I used to, like, I would, people ask me a lot, you know, like, can you explain how you got to whatever, you know, like the Times or the New Yorker or wherever. And it used to, I used to be very cavalier about it. And I used to just be like, well, I just wrote, and this is true, you know, like I just wrote some pieces uh, for the (laughs) internet for $50, which is true, you know. And they got picked up by a lot of these aggregators, which is true. And then suddenly I had a job uh, with Bill Simmons at Grantland and I had a contract in New York Times Magazine. Oh, that's true. You know, Um, and it happened in the course of three weeks, which is also true. You know, and so but I used to tell it in this way where I was like, oh, I was 30 years old. I had been shut out of media for a very long time. And then everything just happened to me because uh, but it was it wasn't like the result of hard work. I just got super lucky. But obviously, that's not really true, you know? And so now I tell young people, like, you just have to turn things in on time and you can't ever have a typo in any of your drafts, which is all shit that I did, you know? <laughs> like, I never sent a letter, to, like an email to an editor being like, I'm a little bit lost on this. Can you help me think it through? You know, which is what some writers do, which I found crazy. I'm just like, no, you turn in things that are done And so if they say that this is like, they have any problem with it, you can argue with them about it, but like, you should at least be a professional at some level. And then I I think I only very certainly started to realize very recently that like, that was like, that I was actually outworking everybody for like a period of six or seven years. And that actually explains a lot of it, you know? But the reason why I didn't want to say that was because it's embarrassing to say that within the circles that we're in, you know, because you're supposed to be effortless about it. And you're not supposed to say I outworked you because it seems like you're like, it's too immigrant strivey. But I, <laughs> I don't know, I, I I very much that part really resonated with me because I, you know, like I read it and I was like, yeah, maybe these women are misguided, but like, fuck the other people. <laughs> you know, Like, that was my conclusion. I was just like, fuck them, like all these judgy people 
judging people who are working hard like what the fuck you know like uh 99% <laughs> of them live in some pied-a-terre in New York City and that their fucking parents own you know like just stop like just stop um but I think a lot of it also was because of Sophia Amoruso and like this, you know, that book coming out. That's when it really turned, you know, like uh, she was, I don't know. Um, she was the one who, for the people who don't remember this moment, I certainly do. But she wrote a book called Girl Boss and everybody sort of had a lot of fun taking big swipes at it because uh, she was sort of the perfect avatar to get mad at, you know, because because she wasn't like a black woman, right? Because she sort of, had like a very affected way of talking about herself. And then it's like she, a Sheryl Sandberg type situation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. I mean, but here's the thing I'll say about Sophia is like, um, she has gone on to be wildly successful. She has over half a million followers on her Instagram. Like she, like these conversations are so internal. And even when I was like interviewing people for that piece and for my book, like when I was like, well, how do the girl boss takedowns make you feel like, people had to familiarize themselves with them a little bit. Like, I, I think, I think we have, and I, and I had to really pull back in my book because I kind of went, I myself went in with this assumption that like, Oh, this, this is, this term is over. And like, nobody buys into this anymore. And actually that wasn't necessarily true. Like it was like <laughs> a little bit more of a media conversation that it was kind mm -hmm. of over. Yeah. And, you know, and again, like Sophia now does, um, like regularly sold out summits on how to raise money. Like she's still doing all of that stuff, despite the fact that her company actually had like fairly credible, you know, labor issues, I think. And, you know, there were some complaints that had been filed and some settlements and things like that, you know, and like, but she has been able to like, um, kind of overcome a lot of these criticisms because like the universe of people that like want to be entrepreneurs that want to be girl bosses like they're not really on twitter like they're not really like part of like this thing that we've kind of become fixated on which was just interesting to see because i i was mm -hmm. just assuming that like we're all starting on the same page that the girl boss is over and like <laughs> actually the young marketing people at P penguin at random house were like that's not how like nobody like we're in the minority talking about this being over most of our yeah. like people that we are friends with or young people are still totally bought into this stuff. That's funny. Well, awesome. what I think a harder thing for me than the hustle pieces and the reason I think some of the, for the backlash also is just trying to understand the relationship between feminism and girl boss rhetoric. I mean, you know, because it obviously like this sort of corporate feminism stuff, I think picked up on the anxieties around the worst tendencies of second wave feminism, blah, blah, blah. And so I guess in your book and, and otherwise in your thinking, like what, how are you understanding that relationship? You know, is this a sort of feminism that whatever, not every feminist has to be a socialist. Maybe this is just corporate feminism or or is it better to just de-link these concepts? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to move away from corporate advance, individualistic corporate advancement as the like, you know, core of modern feminism. I, I do think that that has been a false bill of goods that's been sold to young women. And that's part of what perpetuates this kind of hustle mentality is yeah. that like, if I work hard and then, you know, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg writes this and lean in, she's like, you know, more women at the top means more women are hired. And, you know, ultimately, we're not really seeing that to be true, right? Like, we're not like, just because we've had, you know, women in these kind of symbolic roles, or, you know, I mean, we were, like, <laughs> Tammy, I feel like we we're talking about this before we started recording, but like, these kind of like symbolic <laughs> wins that are supposed to make us feel really good, are supposed to somehow bring women up as a class or like lead to, you know, greater equal pay, like, we have real time examples of how that's not actually happening, right? And so I think, 
that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's been a tactical error to suggest that, like, if you work hard, you take it on, like, you figure out the childcare, you figure out, like, as long as you're working as hard as you can possibly work, like, this will work out for you. And I think that a lot of women right now are just like, no, that's not actually true. Like, I've done it all. I have it all. And I'm dying. Like, I'm literally stretched mm-hmm. so thin. I don't have time for anything. I don't feel successful at anything. And um, so, yeah, no, I don't think it's a particularly successful wave of feminism. It's very compelling. And it's very easy then for like, you know, bosses really benefit from women feeling like crap about themselves all the time. So, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a really easy way to, it's, it's almost like anti-labor, I would say, to just say that like you as an individual need to change your work situation because right. it's your fault that it's the way that it is. And as a woman, you have to work double as hard to get there. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, last night, Gavin Newsom, said that LaFonza Butler, who's the CEO of Emily's List, but also, you know, she she has a very interesting past. She worked for SEIU for a while, but she also was one of the lobbyists for Uber to, you know, when they were trying to pass a law in California to screw over drivers. She worked, she's a lobby, she was a lobbyist for Airbnb, obviously, you know, like that's quite toxic. I mean, the more I think about it, like Airbnb is like maybe the most destructive company of the tech companies that's been around for a while. But I don't know. I, I find her interesting in that I feel like the way that she's talked about is totally in girl boss, like POC type of rhetoric, right? The way that she was even, even uh, the people who are supporting her basically just like, oh, this is a black queer woman who has the resume that matters. And, you know, like the, in the circles that she's in, which is tech, not labor so much, but tech and certainly democratic fundraising, which is what she has been doing for a while. Like, like that's how it's talked about. Like she is talked about in the sort of girl boss terms. And it's that's amazing. How, like the idea that it's dead is like, well, they just picked this person no one had ever heard of <laughs> who I think lives in Maryland. To be a senator, <laughs> you know, and that the person who picked her is not like, you know, like Bernie Sanders here. Like this is like a big, broad, big politician that's probably gonna run for president someday. So like the idea that it's dead is like ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it still matters. And that's yeah. not, I'm not judging LaFonza Butler by that, but I'm just noting that language that she's been described with at, at, to this point is very similar to that. Yeah, and it's very like, you know, hold these people up as models and, you know, they could do it. So like, why couldn't you? Right. Right. Rather than be like, it's like, no, you like, we're actually in this moment where it's become part of our politics to put these symbolic people in these positions and like really double down on the symbolism of it. Right. Like it has to be the like, you know, and, and it's both true, right? Like, it's like, we know it's important. Like, yes, it's like, she's a black lesbian, the only woman in Congress, like that, that, the only black woman Senator right now, like that's, that is important. Like, I'm not saying that's not important, but then that's sold to us as like the thing that's going to override all of the other things that you just listed out in her resume that could make her troubling. Uh, you know, we're, we're having a big moment in labor right now. Like we need politicians that actually give a shit about that. And, um, you know, will actually stand with workers. And like, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I can trust that this person, is, but I'm, you know, and I don't know, we, I feel like we constantly have to hold that complexity and there is too much weight put on it. As far as I'm concerned, there's too much weight put on it. And that's saying something. Yeah. Like I know from- it's so powerful though. <laughs> I thought about it. Like I was in San Francisco here in the Bay Area. We have uh, you know, there's gonna be a mayoral race coming up, and it's London Breed versus so far the heir to the Levi Strauss 
fortune. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, look, London Breed is going to try. This guy is very right wing in a lot of ways in terms of dealing with crime. But London Breed is right now pivoting very hard to go to his right, you know? And it's like sort of the idea is that she's going to run basically that London Breed is from a very, like she had a rough upbringing in San Francisco, you know? Like she is, she is like a self-made person in every sense. And she's just going to say, are you really going to vote for this Levi's heir? as opposed to me who earned every single thing that I've made, but am in, you know, am funded by like Mike Bloomberg and definitely just doing all these terrible things to appease like the tech industry within San Francisco. And for me, it's kind of like, yeah, maybe, you know, I know. I might- <laughs> this is a really bad set of choices yeah. here. <laughs> it's like, I might vote for you because of those reasons. I won't like it, but man, I'm not voting for that. <laughs> that <there."> guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I do admire oh, the, the, you know, what you like, how, how, how far you made it, you know, like that is a incredible gulf that you overcame. Um, it's very powerful still, you know, as an idea. Um, and like, you know, having sort of, I don't know, tacky iterations of it on Instagram doesn't bother me so much, I guess, like it doesn't bother me, but also I come at it from a place where the feminism part of it isn't something I have to like remind myself to think about. Right. I just am sort of judging it on a, in an mm-hmm. academic way yeah it's gonna be brutal thankfully i don't live in san francisco i don't have to actually vote but you know i was like i was like yeah i guess i'm gonna if it was between those two i might actually just vote for London <laughs> <laughs> oh man hopefully somebody else comes and runs at the end all right well um i don't know tammy do you have any other questions this has been great it's been very yeah. informative and wide-ranging conversation yeah um, you've been but, great Smita. thank you so much yeah no it's um, good to talk to you both one day.